Today's video was recorded on January 25th, 2022, and this is part of our series through the book of Exodus. So Exodus begins with several examples of civil disobedience. That is, disobedience to the commands of Pharaoh, who was king of Egypt. And one of the underlying messages we can derive from the book of Exodus is, who do you call king? Is it Pharaoh, king of Egypt, or God? And whether we know it or not, everyone has someone or something that's placed in the position of king, which is at the top of their hierarchy of authority. So whose authority do we follow when it comes to matters of life and death? And so in this lesson, we're going to explore the civil disobedience of the midwives in Exodus chapter 1 and the blessings they receive from God because of their moral courage. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel by clicking that red subscribe button below. Or if you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can follow our channel, and we would certainly appreciate it if you just took a moment or two to rate our podcast and let us know how we're doing. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson on civil disobedience in the book of Exodus. You can open your Bible to Exodus chapter 1. That's where we're going to be looking. We're not going to read the whole thing, but a short segment uh, about the midwives. And I think today, God willing, this will be an example of just how much information the Bible can pack into a very small amount of verses. And we're, we often don't read the Bible that way. We go very quickly past these stories. If you stop, you kind of have to think around the text, what is it telling us? And you start to see amazing stuff come out. Like, I know years ago, if I had read Exodus 1, civil disobedience would not have come to mind. But the more you look at civil disobedience, you go, that's exactly what's happening in Exodus 1 and 2. So we'll talk about that. So I hope that this is uh, an illustration. You can do this all day long with Exodus. Every little story. You can dig and find amazing stuff that still applies to our lives today. So, God willing, I'll be able to at least show you that. Um, I think much of this is still applicable. We still live with tyrants in the world, and every once in a while you have to disobey them to obey God. So, our picture, background picture, this is Edward Pointer, painted this in 1867. Israel in Egypt, of course, it's depicting the slaves, uh, Israeli slaves, slaves to the Egyptians. And, of course, we're, we're leading into that whole story, how they ended up becoming slaves. Civil disobedience. Um, it's a remarkable thing. The book of Exodus opens with acts of civil disobedience. And all of us should be aware of that. That's what's leading off this book. You start the book with acts of civil disobedience. And that sets the tone because we're going to be questioning the authority of Pharaoh, who's representative of uh, human rulers. He epitomizes human rulers. So it's acts of civil disobedience when the civil authority wants you to do something that transgresses God's law. And what we'll connect this to eventually is 
you can lead this pretty much through the Bible all the way up to Jesus' day and the Zealots, because the Zealots hated the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire were totalitarian in their rule. Except the Zealots took violence into their own hands. God didn't want them to be violent. Jesus doesn't want them to be violent. So we're going to see the same thing, Exodus, and um, the same thing that happened with the Zealots. We'll finish with that tonight. And what's very interesting that I think almost every scholar that you read uh, uh, that talks about this event, they'll tell you or they'll note this is what seems to be the first ever recorded act of civil disobedience in all ancient literature is in Exodus 1. So what we're going to look at today are the actions of these midwives that end up disobeying Pharaoh's commandment. And what's really interesting, we're going to talk mostly midwives, but you also recognize you go from the midwives in chapter 1 then go on to chapter 2. You also have the mother of Moses. She's hiding Moses. Then, of all people, to disobey Pharaoh is his daughter. So Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. Now, what a scandal that would be, you know, amongst the, the in the palace, to find out your own daughter disobeyed your command. So, you have a, a number of acts of civil disobedience, including Pharaoh's daughter. We're not going to talk about her tonight, but I just want you to know this rolls into chapter 2. And what we're going to see is one of the themes of Exodus is it's a question of authority. And we're going to talk about it in ancient terms. Who do you make your king? In the ancient world, king is is the representative of all authority in the cosmos is is placed in that king at least that's how the people thought and so what we're going to find is are these midwives who don't follow that authority but go along with god and of course what we see later in exodus is that god's going to present himself as a king in a covenantal relationship so the question of who's your king is all over this uh the book of exodus but it's about questioning authority. Who holds ultimate authority in the world, right? This is a battle that's setting up in, in Exodus. It's um, God versus Pharaoh. And if you notice, they keep calling Pharaoh king of Egypt. Not just an administrative state position, but whose authority in the cosmos? Because that's how the Eastern mind thought about it. And then the same question, who do you call king? This question is going to go all the way through to Jesus. Are you the one, the king of the Jews? Jesus is asked. They're still worried about who's the king. Who do you call the king? And in the Roman Empire, that's who Jesus is set against. He's set against the Roman Caesars. So, who do you, who do you label as your highest authority that you, that you call king? So, that's going to be a big theme in Exodus, but it starts out right here with an, an act of civil disobedience. Um, okay, by the way, all women in chapter 1 and 2 that are doing the civil disobedience. So it's all women, and we'll, of course, look at the two midwives. All right, so that was, that's number one on your handout. If you move to number two, I just want to do a little bit of background on Pharaoh. Now, we'll talk more of Pharaoh as we go through this 
book of Exodus, but uh, he's not just a king. He's not just an administrative leader of a state. Pharaoh, to the people of Egypt or in the ancient world, he had the power to hold the cosmos in order. At least that's what they thought. So when you read about this battle between God and Pharaoh, right, it's emblematic of all ancient kings, and all ancient kings thought themselves in some way divine and had divine powers to maintain order in a chaotic world. So as we uh, read through this, keep in mind that they don't view Pharaoh as just any old person. So, some of the bullet points that I put down on your sheet. In some sense, Pharaoh is thought of as divine. Now, he's an incarnation of some ancient god. Not all pharaohs chose, chose the same god. But, for instance, Pharaoh Ramses, well, the name Ramses means the son of Ra. Ra is the god, Ra, and Mises is child. So he's literally the son of God, or the son of a god. The authority of the father is passed down to the pharaoh as the son. They all take on the name that is some kind of offspring of a god, right? He's perceived to be divine in some way, shape, or form. In his divine nature, he has the power of the gods that exist, and he has the power to stave off chaos. And, and now I'm going to give you the Egyptian words because as we go forward in the, in the um, text, we, th we have to think in Egyptian context. So the word for chaos is isfet, and that it encapsulates a lot. I'll, I'll give you a, an example in a minute. But chaos. And he can bring order, ma'at. And those are the two, uh, you don't have to memorize those, but read about ma'at and isfet sometime. And you'll see it's the same thing that our God does. He brings order to the chaos of the world. That's what they're all looking for. One interesting thing about Pharaoh is the point inside Pharaoh that maintains order uh, the order of the cosmos is his heart. So Pharaoh's heart was, was said to be able to maintain the order of the cosmos. What's the battle going on between God and Pharaoh? Pharaoh's heart is, is involved. We'll talk more about that. The hardening versus some of the words are to heavy Pharaoh's heart. God is a judge over Pharaoh's heart. God keeps everything in order. Pharaoh doesn't. So this is a big, uh, it's a big theme in Exodus. In fact, there's something, this is really cool. Order, the word ma'at, order, in Egyptian mindset, uh, is represented by the Nile. Because the Nile River provides you with water. They're, they live in the desert, right? But there's this giant thing of water flowing through. So it brings water, fish, animals, plants. So the, the Nile is order. The Nile is life, right? So the Jews live in ma'at. They live in order, but they're slaves, right? 
And notice when they go into the desert, they're complaining. Oh, I wish we could go back. At least we had food in Egypt. Yeah, but you were a slave. Now, can you imagine a country who has everything they need, all the food that they could ever imagine, all the money they could ever imagine, and they're still stuck enslaved in something, right? You can never imagine a country that would have so much but still be enslaved. So you live in order, yet you're enslaved. God says, I'm going to take you to the desert. Well, the image for the desert is chaos. So Isfet, the image, desert. Why? Well, what do you have in the desert? No water, no food, no shade, no protection. You're stripped of everything, and you have complete reliance on God. So it's interesting that God takes them from order into chaos, at least in the mind of the Egyptians, to free them to be with God. And where do we find God in life? In the chaos. That's where you hear God's voice the clearest. We live in a country that's so wealthy people can't hear God anymore. I don't need him. I got all the money I need. Oh yeah, if you're stripped of everything, suddenly God's voice becomes important. Anyways, we could preach about that, but the point is, this is what's important about Pharaoh is supposed to be the one who holds that in order, and the Bible's going to say, no, 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 there's a battle between God and Pharaoh. God holds that in order. And then finally, Pharaoh is, he's divine. He's the lawgiver and the judge, right? So if Pharaoh says, commit infanticide, kill the infants, then there's nothing to stop you from doing it. He's the one telling you to do it. He's the one who's going to judge you ultimately. He has full authority and there's no limits on his power. Of course, God, reality shows up and limits his power. Um, the next one is about Pharaoh as we move forward. Is Pharaoh, is the, uh, he epitomizes totalitarian rule. And so much of human history has been defined, uh, or I'm sorry, not defined, so much of human history has been under totalitarian rule. Where the leaders themselves see themselves as God or a God, and that they're the ultimate lawgiver and judge, right? So we, part of the why it's so important to study Exodus is this is the, what we typically find in, in humanity. So the, the, the Bible presents God's battle with Pharaoh as like an archetypal battle between God as reality and a totalitarian state. And one of the things, Egypt, by the way, Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world back then. And one thing to notice, it's very interesting, in, as it describes this, uh, the battle between God and Pharaoh, uh, totalitarian states always crumble. They devolve into chaos. There's not one in existence that hasn't devolved under its own weight into chaos. It's self-imposed destruction in the name of trying to keep things in order. So if you think of something like East Germany, right? East Berlin had a wall, and the wall wasn't to keep all the flocking people who were clamoring to get in. The wall wasn't there for that. The wall was there to keep the people who were living in East Germany in, right? From, from escaping. So it's the opposite, right? People don't flock to totalitarian nations. They try to escape totalitarian rule, right? The Berlin Wall was to, to keep them in, which typically walls that keep you in are called prisons, 
right? They weren't there to deter people from coming in. And ultimately, it collapses uh, under its own totalitarian weight into chaos. So it gives us this great example because as the God and Pharaoh are going back and forth, eventually Pharaoh's advisors are going to say to him, don't you see you're destroying Egypt? You could say that thing to every totalitarian rule ruler. Don't you notice you're destroying your own country or your own whatever? And of course, no, they can't. They're blinded to, uh, to what's actually happening. So it's a great example uh, here in the book of Exodus. And then ultimately, God is the ultimate judge. This is one of the, of course, main points of, of the book. So, so right off the bat, that is to set up the fact that Pharaoh's going to try to institute, some people call it a slow genocide, some people it's infanticide, no doubt, killing the, the, the children, but he's going to try to place limits on the natural order of the, of the Hebrew people. And what we see right off the bat, number three on your handout, is his plans immediately start to backfire. So when Pharaoh implements a plan to try to control something, it goes out of control. And this is typical of totalitarian rule. Any attempt to limit or eliminate the Hebrew people that, that Pharaoh puts into place, the exact opposite ends up happening. You increase the people. They're more prosperous, even though you've made their conditions harder. Uh, even within the, the church, we've seen that times when persecution is high in the church, what happens to the number of Christians? It goes up. And you think, well, that doesn't make sense. But that's only because we have human thinking and not, uh, not God's point of view. So, right off the bat, uh, the plans begin to backfire. Um, again, you can go all day long on, you know, say Hitler or something. Hitler attempts to eradicate the Jews. And what's the end result by 1948? A Jewish state. A Jewish state that blossoms and flourishes. Right? The exact opposite happened from what Hitler thought he was going to do. In Jesus' day, they try to, hey, we're going to get rid of this guy. We're going to stop you or stop the disciples from preaching in Jesus' name. Right? We're going to get rid of this. Jesus guy keeps making us look bad. Let's kill him. And what happens? He raises from the dead. And the next thing you know, there's a huge movement. So just typical behavior. And I want to at least show you one Bible verse that encapsulates this. Anytime you try to stomp something out, it can often, the thing you're trying to stomp out, becomes the cornerstone of the, of the growth movement. That's Jesus, right? So the, you can look up the verse. It's in Psalm 118.25. The stone the builders rejected has become what? The head of the corner or the cornerstone. You try to reject Jesus as the stone or, or the stone that was rejected, and what happens? An entire movement is built off him. And this even happens today as you try to limit speech or place limitations on ideas, and they spring out, right? If you don't want, a, or if you want a kid to read a book, ban the book, right? And the kids will be clamoring to try to read the book that you don't want them to read. So the stone the builders rejected, it's still true today as, as we look at our world. Be careful who you think you're going to be rejecting, they might just become uh, the head of the corner. Okay, all of that's introduction. 
uh, talking about Pharaoh, totalitarian states, who actually rules this world, right? Because God's re- God, the reality of God is going to show up one way or another. Now, let's go read the text. Now that, the, now that we've kind of built this up a little bit, let's go to the text and read. And we're going to start, it's Exodus 1, and we're going to start at verse 15. That um, will begin the story of the midwives. And then we're going to go into the text and ask some questions about these midwives to try to uh, pull out of the text what's going on uh, inside these stories. So Exodus 1, excuse me, Exodus 1, 15 to 22. So verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. That's who we'll talk about, uh, these two ladies. Verse 16, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. There's your civil disobedience. Now, Pharaoh is going to call them in. So, verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, what have you, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Now, what you'll see here is the women are going to play on the ignorance of Pharaoh, right? Uh, midwives, or the birthing process, was all female. So men were not even supposed to be around it, so Pharaoh would have no clue what's going on. So what do they do? They spin a little lie, right? Verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife arrives. So God was, verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. So there you see his attempt to rid Egypt of the people or slow down their growth. Uh, The opposite things happen. Okay, verse 21, uh, and because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. Now, that's the NIV. We'll talk about that phrase in a minute. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people. Now, does Pharaoh's daughter include all in all his people? Yes. So, the Pharaoh gave gave an order to all his people. And so he says, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every, let every girl live. So that's our short little text. Seven verses, eight verses. And what we need to do is go into this, wade into the details of this, and start drawing out what's going on in these Bible verses. Because there's some interesting things that we can pull out of this. So let's just, let's look at these two ladies, Shifra and Pua. And we're just going to talk about a couple different things uh, and and what scholars, what stands out for scholars. Um, So the verse says again, 
the king of Egypt, so notice the king of Egypt, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. And one thing to note, the book of Exodus, in week one, so a couple weeks ago, we noted that the book of Exodus is called, in Hebrew, Shemot. And the word Shemot means the names, because the, very, the opening line of Exodus is, these are the names, Shemot. That's how you know what scroll to go to. So the book is a book about names. These are the names. And so to be named in the book is a big deal. In fact, if you read at the top of chapter 2, Moses' parents aren't even named. They're named later in the book. But So to be named is a big deal. And here's these two women. Out of, they come out of nowhere. And their names are now enshrined in the Bible. Why? Because they had the moral courage to stand up to tyranny. That's why they're enshrined in the Bible. As I mentioned, the first ever recorded act of civil disobedience that we have, re or that we have recorded uh, on record. So this is a big deal. There's more men mentioned than women. So for them to have their names show up, that's a big deal. So that this ought to stand out to us, that their names are there, and it's, gonna, it's showing you how important this act was. God's going to bless them for their courage, and of course their courage, their names, live on even for us to be uh, encouraged and inspired by their standing up to tyranny. But who are they, right? Who are, who are these? If you, uh, on, my, um, on my screen, it says, the, the Hebrew midwives. Now, I think all of your Bibles say the Hebrew midwives, but who are Shifra and Pua? And we need to wade into this a little bit because this is one example of the Eastern text being ambiguous. And when you find an ambiguous text, you don't run and say, wait, I don't want to look at that because it's ambiguous. You dive in because that's where the, that's where the, the, that's where the gold is inside the ambiguity. So, who are these ladies? So, I think, as I mentioned, in all of your Bibles, they say uh, the phrase that's in English is the Hebrew midwives. Now, what seems to be the emphasis? What nationality do you think or do you assume these women are if it says Hebrew midwives? What nationality do you assume? Hebrew. We tend to think that they're Hebrew women, and that's one way to, trans to translate that verse, Hebrew midwives. The problem is, the verse is ambiguous, and it can be translated the opposite way, and I'll show you a couple examples that, it, that they do. The other way is the midwives to the Hebrews. And if it's midwives to the Hebrews, then that would imply that they're either Egyptian or some other nationality. And so, scholars now, we dig in, we dive into the ambiguity, and we say, well, which one is it? Well, let's think about it, right? What are some of the questions we can ask? We can go to the text and ask tough questions, right? And one of the questions that scholars ask, and I'll show you, even Josephus, the 
uh, the Roman historian, would Pharaoh trust Hebrew women to kill their own people? So would Pharaoh put two people in charge to kill their own people? And many scholars say, perhaps not, right? So perhaps Pharaoh, he would prefer to get Egyptian women that are then have an allegiance to Pharaoh. So is it possible that instead of the Hebrew midwives, it's the midwives to the Hebrews? And that's what, now let me just tell you, it's unclear. So it, you can go either way and you say you're right. You just have to justify why you would go one way or the other. But it seems, and I'll show you two ancient documents that go towards the midwives to the Hebrews, meaning that these two women are Egyptian women. They feel the moral obligation to not kill a child. That is going to be a big deal, as we'll see in a minute. So uh, the first one I'm going to show you, I failed to put on your sheet, and I apologize. But um, let me give you two examples of what we see uh, from ancient texts. The first one is from a document or set of documents called the Septuagint. And we've talked about this before. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, somewhere around 250 to 200 BC, so a couple hundred years before Jesus. A group of scholars, Hebrew scholars, came down from Jerusalem to Alexandria, Egypt, copied, uh, translated from Hebrew into Greek. And so what scholars, modern scholars do, is it's always interesting to go to the Greek to say, how did the, those Hebrew, uh, um, yeah, the Hebrew thinkers envision this in Greek? Because that'll often give us a clue. So if I show this to you, here, it's called the Brenton Septuagint Translation on the screen, and the text says, And the king of the Egyptians spoke to the midwives of the Hebrews. So somewhere around 250 BC, the group of rabbis or sages from Jerusalem, that's how they translated that verse. So did they see that those women were not Hebrew women, but Egyptians? That's possible. So that's just one example. Now, just so you know, every modern translation has it the other way. Hebrew midwives. Okay? It's not wrong. But it's great to explore this, because this is where we learn. Okay. Then Josephus, this is actually, the quote is on the back of your sheet. Josephus, who's the Roman, well, he was a, he was a Pharisee captured by the Romans, became a uh, a writer of the Jewish history. What does Josephus say? Josephus says this, the Egyptian midwives, right? So he calls them Egyptian midwives, should watch the labors of the Hebrew women. So he separates them. Then number 207, this is Josephus. Uh, for those that were the women that, that were enjoined to be the offices of the midwives, and then he finishes by saying, and by the reason of their relation to the king would not transgress his commands. So even Josephus saw it as this idea that if you put Hebrew women and told them to kill their own babies, it's not likely they would follow through. Now, so which one is it? Why would the text be deliberately, in fact, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, 
he passed away uh, a little over a year ago. Um, but he, he writes, it's deliberate that the text is ambiguous. Why is it deliberate that the text is ambiguous? Why would God do that? Why would God want ambiguity around their race? And Rabbi Sachs says it's because race does not matter in areas of human life or being compelled to transgress God's rules. Moral character transcends race. And there's no reason, if you, because if you said, look, if, if you had a clear statement that said they're Hebrew women, the Israelites would say, see, we're morally superior to these other people over there. But now you can't do that because they may have been Egyptian women. And that, the same race as the Pharaoh, it has nothing to do with race, has everything to do with your moral character. That is what God wants us to pay attention to. So you put an ambiguous statement where you have to think through which way does this go? And it could be either one, meaning there are righteous Gentiles. Hey, Jews, don't think Gentiles can't be righteous because they can. So it's kind of a big deal to look at it as if they're Egyptian women rather than, uh, than the Hebrew women. So, okay, t- let's take it one step further because the text says they feared God. That's verse 17 that says the midwives feared God. Now, what do we do with that? What if they're Egyptian women? What does it mean to fear God? Okay. So, one explanation of this, and assuming they're they're Egyptian women, their consciences themselves say there is some greater authority besides Pharaoh. You're told to do something that's going to transgress God, and you get a horrible feeling inside of you. Something's wrong. This is not a correct thing to do. Your own awareness of reality says that's wrong. It doesn't mean that they knew God literally, but that they had the awareness of a higher authority. So, for instance, if you look at your text, verse 17, it says they feared God, G-O-D. And in the Bible, the word God when you see it in the Old Testament, is a translation in English of the Hebrew word Elohim. There's also, you'll see in your Bible, capital, all caps, Lord, capital L, capital O, R, D. That one is English for the, the name of God, yud heh vav you so, so people wrestle with what's the difference between Elohim, God, or uh, yud heh vav the way we distinguish it in English is by making it Lord. And so one of the ideas, and of course, it's just how do we, you know, how, as we're looking at our Bible, is that Elohim is the impersonal force of God. Elohim creates the world. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. By the time you get through the, the creation story and you get to chapter 2, where it's now humanity, Adam and Eve, it goes to Yahweh Elohim. It's a relationship so that the, the, once God has a personal name, he's relational. But you can be a Gentile, not having a personal relationship with God, and recognize the impersonal force. Because your conscience says there's something greater. And Paul, by the way, 
just read this when you get a chance. Romans 2, verse 14 and 15, Paul says the same thing. He says, when there's a Gentile who does what the law says to do, but doesn't have the law, it's because it's written on their heart and on their conscience. And so this would be a reflection of what's happening with these, assuming these uh, Egyptian women are, or I'm sorry, the midwives are Egyptian, that it's possible to still recognize the reality of God without having that personal relationship. So just uh, if you're going to go with the Egyptian midwives, then you have to go to the next thing that says, okay, what about the God part? Well, it's, uh, you can, to fear God is, uh, in the Hebrew, the idea of fearing God is a, is a moral issue, right? I'm not going to transgress a, mo- a moral thing. And whether you believe in God or not, you can still have that awareness that you're doing something wrong. Most people do. Okay, uh, we got to move along here. Let me get to number eight, because there's another thing that is interesting, particularly, um, of course, God is going to bless them for their actions, but there's a verse, verse 21 says that God provided for them, and then in Hebrew, it says houses. It's the word houses. Now, what does houses mean to figure out? What does it mean there? Well, in the Hebrew term for house also means a family line like the house of David. So we have to take a look at this phrase. Uh, Again, difficult to translate into English, and I'll show you that in a second. Households. So if you have the King James, King James Version says this, it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. That's how the King James, a much more literal translation. But then you scratch your head. What, how did he make them houses? Okay, but that's literal. Then when the New King James updated, it said, because the midwives fear God, he provided households for them. Well, that makes a little bit more sense. That's more contemporaneous to provide a household for them. And then if you go to the NIV, which is what I read from, now we're really up to date. And it says, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So God blesses the midwives by giving them families. And this is so cool because what we find here in the text is a, what, what seems to be a measure for measure. So what does it mean that God gave them houses? Well, I already mentioned that the the midwife um, position was always female. So male men were not allowed uh, to be in there. It was improper. And what it seems is that many women who became midwives, they themselves, you might go down that path if you couldn't have children of your own for whatever reason. So perhaps these two women couldn't have their own children so they become midwives. And then what we see here is something of a measure for measure, right? What did they do? They saved children. They provided a child. By saving the child, they provided a child for another family. And what does God do? He blesses them by giving them a child. 
So that little phrase, God blessed them and gave them houses, or made them houses, made them a household, appears to be a type of measure for measure. Your action comes back around, and then they're blessed, and they get the household. So just some, some details to some of these difficult words in there, ambiguous, but I think we get a really cool story, if you can think about it, as Egyptian women who end up fearing God, they ignore their leader, and then God blesses them for it. And ultimately, you know, they're part of our, they're part of our tradition of salvation, because ultimately, they're leading to the growth of the nation of Israel. So, all right, let's wrap this up. Civil disobedience. It's nonviolent civil disobedience, and that's very important, nonviolent, right? So when we see this, it's not people acting out against Pharaoh or the, the Egyptian state. It's them saying, no, I won't act when you tell me to do something wrong. So it's nonviolent disobeying this, the civil authorities. And one thing we must notice is that as Exodus goes on, God handles Pharaoh in Egypt. God does not want the Israelites to be violent against them. In fact, the, he tells the Israelites on the, on the night, the, the tenth plague, stay in your home, right? They're commanded to stay in their house as they can't be blamed for the violence that's about to happen to, to Egypt. What God wants us to do is, obviously, if there's a, a given a, a command that's immoral, that you, you go along with God's authority rather than the human authority. So you act in God's truth rather than humanity's truth. Now, uh, real quick, before we jump to the zealots in the New Testament, because this is exactly what Jesus is going to deal with, is a type of civil disobedience, and how do you, how do you go against Rome? I just want to point out something about um, uh, the idea of, because God doesn't want people to be a doormat. He's not calling us to be a doormat. Neither is Jesus. You can have self-defense, and you can have just war. It's unfortunate, but there are times in our fallen state of humanity when human beings are re required to take up violence against other human beings, particularly against evil. And if someone is coming at you with a tank to kill you, what do you do? You do whatever you can to stop the tank from killing you. And that might take a larger gun than the tank. So I, I, what I want to show you, though, is you start with this nonviolent civil disobedience. Then God does all of the destruction of Egypt. But shortly after that, once we leave past the Red Sea, you're going to find there's a, there's a battle that starts with a group called the Amalekites. Now, why does God allow them to go into battle? Because the Israelites are attacked. They're attacked for no reason at all. In fact, the, the Amalekites are seen as a group of people that always attack the Jews for no reason. No land dispute, no, uh, no provocation. It's just, it's just a baseless attack. And what do you do when someone's attacking you, trying to kill you? You stand up and you kill them first. There's a, uh, within Judaism, there's a principle to save a human life is greater than all other commandments. Jesus has this argument, do you heal on the Sabbath to save a human life? Yes, you transgress the Sabbath to save a human life. To save a human life is the most important thing. 
So within, um, uh, within Judaism or within the Jewish writings, the Talmud, there's a, there's a saying, if someone comes to kill you, rise up and kill them first. Because when someone is coming to kill, they know what they're doing. They know the risks. They're not blind to their, to their actions. And to save a human life includes your life. So there are times when you have to stand up and say no. And I just want you to know there is a difference between civil disobedience and then when someone is actually coming to attack you. God doesn't call us just to stand there and do nothing. Um, you save a human life, your own or the person next to you. So I just wanted to make sure I make that clear because I don't want someone to uh, misinterpret what I'm saying about, you know, if we're attacked. Okay, and that leads us back to, as I mentioned in the, in the beginning, was the zealots. And so Jesus is, it's now Rome, the Roman Empire, and the same philosophy applies as Jesus is talking with the zealots. Now, he doesn't say it uh, explicitly, but God will take care of Rome, just like God took care of Egypt. Don't become violent and lose your own humanity in, your, in the violence. If they attack you, if they're attacking you, yes, defend yourself. But don't go on the offensive. And of course, that's what the zealots do. They want a war. So you can bring, the, again, the same ideas from Exodus all the way up to the zealots. So when we look at this, first of all, I hope you can see eight verses, you pull a lot out of there. Because when we really pause to look at the story and what's going on, I think you can even see that this doesn't go away in today's world. We're still in a world where there's totalitarian-type uh, leaders, and if you're ever called into that position, you may not be. God wants you to go to his authority and not the authority of a human being. So, I don't know. This, I love getting, you see things in the text that if you just read past it so quickly, it would never come out. So, I think when you start to see this blossom, it's all of life is, be, is being shown uh, in the biblical text, if we have eyes to see it. Okay, so that was civil disobedience. Let me go ahead and uh, stop my share.